Scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles out, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37 there. Excuse me. As a pastor, you get asked a lot of hard questions. Uh, Questions about doctrine or things that are hard to understand in the Bible. Questions about life and how to deal with this or why is this happening to me. But for me, perhaps, the most dreaded question that I get asked every day is this. What time are you going to be home for supper? Now, I dread it not because it's a hard question or even because it's a particularly difficult question. It's it's quite straightforward. It's, It's not even an unfair question. It's very fair and quite important for my wife as she's trying to time the dinner meal so that we can all share it together. I dread it because I know there's a strong likelihood that I'm not going to keep my word again. I will say 5.30 because I think that's the right answer and because it will make me look good. You know, the faithful husband who, you know, swoops in to rescue his wife from the chaos of four small children right at the most bewitching hour of the day, you know. But then almost invariably, I will try and get one or maybe two more things done and such that it's, you know, 6 or 6.15 finally by the time I'm walking through the door, which is, of course, very self-centered and unloving in a very disrespectful way to treat my wife and family. Now, for some of us, that may seem like a rather small example of dishonesty. Though if you're a mom with small kids, you know it's right up there with you know, perjury in federal court or something like that. <laughs> but you know, I share that as a confession, but, but also just as one example of the many ways we're all prone to use our words for dishonesty and selfish gain, whether we're trying to manipulate someone or look good or or escape some responsibility we've committed ourselves to, all of it in effort to build our own self-glorifying kingdoms. What our passage this morning reminds us, however, is that there is only one king of heaven and earth. And following him means saying what we mean and doing what we say. Saying what we mean and doing what we say, whether it's at home, uh, in our families, at church, whether it's what we say at work, in our business dealings, at school, on Facebook, at the salon, wherever we are, Jesus is the king who calls us to integrity in our speech. And so as we look at this passage, let's ask God to expose our hearts 
uh, and any dishonesty that's in there. And then to change our hearts through his gospel that we might honor Jesus as king with respect to our speech. So please pray with me. Lord, that is our our desire. Would you change our hearts? Uh, We come before you uh, needy and broken and weak and rebellious. And yet you, in your amazing, infinite love, still love us, still desire us, and have paid and done everything necessary to make us your own. And so, God, change our hearts as we look into your word. Expose the ugly spots that so often show themselves through our mouths. And be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning, uh, Matthew five thirty-three through 37, is part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, which is where Jesus lays out his vision for life in his kingdom. So life, what it looks like to live under his rule and reign as king. And verses 33 to 37 are part of a larger section where Jesus is showing us how his vision of kingdom life does not overturn God's law in the Old Testament... Uh, what God had already said to his covenant people about how to live. Rather, it actually fulfills it. So the law itself was pointing all along to this, to Jesus and his kingdom. And he shows this uh, in contrast to the religious leaders of his day. So groups like the scribes and Pharisees who acted like gatekeepers of the law, but who in reality, their obedience was only skin deep. They neglected the heart of the law. Their righteousness, if it could be called that, was phony and superficial. Jesus and his righteousness, the righteousness of his kingdom, goes deeper. It comes from the heart. And so he's demonstrating what that looks like in 521 through 48, where he gives six examples of how his kingdom actually fulfills the heart of the law. So far... We've seen him deal with the question of murder and and how keeping the law is not just what we do with our hands, but what we do in our hearts. Uh, Last week, we looked at the holiness of marriage, how avoiding adultery is not just, uh, um, it's more than just not sleeping with someone else's spouse or filing the right paperwork to get a divorce. It's guarding our hearts and upholding God's creational design for the permanence of marriage. Today, Jesus is going to deal with the subject of swearing on oath. Uh, Verse 33, if you'll look at that with me. Again, you've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Now, unlike each of the uh, references we've seen so far in this section... Here, Jesus is not quoting directly something from the Old Testament, but a summary of several Old Testament passages. And so, for instance, Leviticus 19.12, Do not swear falsely or break your oath by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Or Deuteronomy 23, uh, verses 21 to 23, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, 
because you have made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And because Jesus is talking about oaths sworn to the Lord, he's, he's also touching on the third commandment. You shall not take the, Lord your God, the name of the Lord your God in vain. To, to swear an oath to God and then not keep it is to use God's name in an empty or vain way. And so Jesus is touching on the subject of oaths. What is an oath? And, and, and why does he care what we do with them or what we do with our speech more generally? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary, I think, gives us a a very good definition. An oath is a solemn, usually formal, calling upon God, or a God, to witness to the truth of what one says, or to witness that one sincerely intends to do what one says. It is a solemn attestation of the truth or inviolability of one's words. So think of the courtroom scene. Uh, maybe our, our most common picture of this. What happens before somebody testifies in court? They place their hand on a Bible, indicating the authority uh, on which they're swearing that oath, and, and then they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. So in other words, what they're saying is, you can trust what I'm about to say, because I'm calling on God as my witness. He knows whether I'm going to lie, and he has the right to strike me down if I do. Or something like that. Now, in a perfect world, where everyone was trustworthy, and where everyone was able to trust others, oaths would be unnecessary. We wouldn't need something like that. Uh, As John Stott has said, swearing or oath-taking is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. That that we would need to even do something like that. But in the fallen world that we live in, uh, where people are prone to lie and are suspicious of others doing so, oaths can be a helpful uh, convention. So they can add gravity or, or even consequences to the words being spoken and help somebody to take them seriously. And we see a lot of examples throughout the Bible in both Old and New Testament of people taking oaths. For instance, Joshua charging Achan to tell the truth in in Joshua 7, 19. My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. In other words, speak for the sake of his glory and under his authority. Or Ruth pledging her commitment to Naomi in Ruth 1, 17. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Or Boaz pledging his commitment to Ruth later in the same book, chapter 3. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Even God himself swears on oath. Not because he's prone to dishonesty, but because we're prone to unbelief. And so he says things like in Isaiah 45, By myself I have sworn, my mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. So there's lots of examples in the scripture of that kind of speech, but we do similar things today. For instance, we say things like, I swear, you know, You mean it? Yeah, I swear. I swear to God. I'm telling the truth. We say those kinds of things. Or, I pinky swear. Or, cross my heart and hope to die. Those kinds of things. You know, when someone is elected to public office, we make them take uh, an oath of office, we call it. 
when a medical doctor begins their practice, they have to swear to uphold the Hippocratic Oath. Even wedding vows that we make are an oath before God that we are, we're promising before God and before these witnesses, we're going to be faithful to keep our vow to our spouse. Business contracts are a kind of oath. You know, a solemn agreement that, that what we, that we are saying what we mean and that we're going to do what we say. And so we sign the dotted line. It's a, it's a kind of oath. And as this passage reminds us, Swearing under oath is no small thing. In fact, it's intended to be a very big thing, not something to be done lightly. As Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 6 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? So the Old Testament and the New, but the Old Testament in particular, spoke often of the seriousness, seriousness of keeping oaths. And Jesus upholds that seriousness in this passage, we're, we're called to tell the truth and keep our word. But he does have a significant problem with what had become of oaths in his day, particularly with what the religious leaders like the Pharisees were doing with them. They had taken a convention that was designed to promote truthfulness and trust, and they had turned it into a vehicle for dishonesty and selfish gain. Uh, so Jesus says in Matthew five thirty four to 36, But I tell you, you know, you've heard this, but I tell you, do not swear at all, either in, by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Now the Pharisees, they were using their oaths to do two things. First, to manipulate the trust of their hearers. So impressing them with big language of how serious they were. But then second, to create an escape clause out of their words in case it became expedient to go back on their word. So, so they dressed their speech in oaths in order to create an impressive and imposing wall around their words, making their words seem secure and trustworthy. Like the oath was like a fortress, guaranteeing the safety of believing this person. But within that imposing wall, they built in a secret escape hatch, just in case they needed to get out. They could always get out of their words if they needed to, even though they looked serious and trustworthy on the outside. And the way that they created that escape hatch was through a complex system for deciding which oaths were binding and which oaths were not. For instance, listen to Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. If anyone swears by the gift on it, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, 
Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. So, you see kind of the posturing there. As long as I use this formula, I really don't have to do what I said I would do. But if I use this one, I'm in trouble. Even even later rabbinic tradition reflects that kind of posturing. Uh, for instance, one whole tractate of the Mishnah, uh, which a Hebrew um, tradition of teaching, one whole tractate was devoted to oaths. Uh, and suggest that when someone has broken an oath, quote, if he says by heaven and earth, they are free. They're not guilty of breaking the oath. But if he swore by any of the divine names or by some other divine attribute, so they're guilty. That same kind of system. And, and that's what we see in Matthew 5 here. The Pharisees' assumption was that if they swore by something other than God, they didn't have to keep the oath. So they swore by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or by themselves. People would still be impressed by the oath and and trust them, but they had a way out if they needed to. Basically like saying, I had my fingers crossed behind my back when I said that. The Pharisees claimed to keep the letter of the law, but they were butchering its spirit, using their words to get what they wanted out of life in effort to build their own kingdom. And oh, how we do the same thing today, don't we? we? We too want certain things out of life, and we want them on our terms, and so we use words to manipulate. We, we might exaggerate something uh, to make our point. We might stretch the truth, or perhaps just give half the truth, because the other half is pretty condemning. We make flowery promises that we don't intend to keep. We even say things like, I guarantee it, or I swear, or we sign the dotted line in agreements that we have no intention of holding up. We say things that we don't mean, and we don't do what we say. It's like when I use the word soon in my family. You know, in other words, I'll do that soon, or yeah, we'll play that game soon. Uh, My wife says to me, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> you know, soon means relatively short time frame. But because I've used that word so many times, but not done very quickly what I said I would soon do, now when they hear, yeah, I'll do that soon, they're like, great, it's going to be until tomorrow or something like that. <laughs> what it really means is that dad is too selfish, he can't take himself away from what he's doing right now, or he's too obsessive, he can't turn off from from work or from something that's bothering him, what it means is that dad's agenda is crossing with God's agenda and dad wants to win. We're also pretty good at, at finding ways of getting out of our words of what we said we would do. We might not have the complex system of oaths uh, but we have our own versions of it. Uh, you know, from the endless creativity that goes into explaining why I didn't turn my homework in. You know, my house is being fumigated and, and I, I don't want to go in there and suffocate just to get it. Or, you know, a sudden wind blew it out of my hand and I, I just never saw it again. We, we're creative that way. Or the common but ever unconvincing, 
I know that's what I said, but that's not what I meant. We use that one. And we're masters of excuses and escape clauses. As soon as we realize our goal or our agenda, uh, that our glory and our kingdom would, would be better served by not keeping our word, as soon as we realize that, we're looking for the nearest exit. So we claim to be honoring God and following him, but we hijack the system. We use it for our own selfish motives. Because after all, it's our glory and our kingdom, what we want in life and therefore demand, that's what's at stake. Jesus has no tolerance for such treasonous duplicity. There is only one king of heaven and earth, and those who follow him say what they mean and do what they say. And that's what the law was after in the first place. So it is, as Don Carson says, if oaths designed to encourage truthfulness become occasions for clever lies and deceit, Jesus will abolish oaths. If you're going to play that way, game over. Look again at verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear at all. In verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, from these verses, some traditions have suggested that, that Christians should never swear under oath in any circumstance, uh, even in a court of law. And while I applaud the seriousness with which they're taking Jesus' words, I, I do think that position lacks a little nuance and, and misses the big picture a bit. Because again, we see elsewhere the Apostle Paul swearing oaths under oath. Uh, see it in Second Corinthians and First Thessalonians and Romans and so on. We see God swearing under oath. And we even see Jesus himself testify under oath later in the book of Matthew. In chapter 26, verses 63 to 64, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. So, while he doesn't seem to be abolishing the convention in its entirety, he does issue a very strong correction in two ways. First, he closes the loopholes that the Pharisees thought they could exploit, slamming their escape hatch in their face. And second, he suggests that oaths should be essentially unnecessary for members of his kingdom who speak the truth and who keep their words for Jesus' sake. So, so Jesus closes the Pharisees' loopholes. He dismantles the faulty logic of their oath system by reminding them that any word uttered in creation is spoken before God's presence. And therefore, binding, regardless of what formula you attach to the front of it. Again, they thought that as long as they swore by heaven and not by the God of heaven, they could break their word. Jesus rebukes them. He reminds them that Everything in creation falls under God's jurisdiction, which means that every oath involves him and that they themselves have no claim on what they're swearing by and no power with which to back up their words. Look again at verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for that's God's throne, so that's out. You can't avoid his presence there. 
or by the earth, that's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, that's the city of the great king, or even by your own head. You don't even have jurisdiction over your own head. You can't tell your hair to turn white or gray. You know, again, today we, we find ways to try and circumvent that, but you strip away those chemicals, it's one color. You know, no matter what you think, it's, it's that color. So we have no jurisdiction over our own heads. Don't swear by those either. God is king. Your system by which you thought you could look good and avoid accountability is broken. Because whatever you swear by and wherever you say it, you do so in the presence of God. And if that's the case, then why depend so much on oaths? If they're so easily hijacked and manipulated, and if whatever we say with or without an oath should be true, then Jesus says, just say what you mean and do what you say. Let your yes actually mean yes, and your no actually mean no. And avoid the evil one's temptation to use your words for your own selfish gain. Followers of Jesus should be known by their integrity of speech. Uh, Paul urges Titus in Titus 2, 7 through 8. In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. As Sinclair Ferguson says, the Christian does not need to call on God to witness what he says because God is watching and is present as he speaks, knowing his heart through and through. Anything beyond this straightforward honesty in our speech comes, Jesus says, from the evil one. So, what does that look like? What... If our hearts are so prone to selfishness such that our words are so prone to dishonesty, what does it look like? How do we speak with integrity before God? What's interesting is that the very reality that condemns the Pharisees' false speech and ours with them is also what motivates and enables us to say what we mean and do what we say. And that's recognizing that God is king. That God is king. Think again about why we exaggerate. Why we lie or or tell half-truths. Why we don't mean what we say. Because we're trying to control some person or some situation to go the way we want it. So we have to manipulate their approval or marginalize their influence. We have to impress them so that they like us and make much of us. Listen to how Paul Tripp describes it. Often our words reveal an attempt to control things for our own good. We're moved by a personal sense of what we want or what we think would be good. And so we speak in a way that guarantees we will get it. We defend We accuse, we inflict guilt, manipulate, rationalize, argue, cajole, beg, plead, or threaten, or take oaths. All for the purpose of controlling a person or a situation. Our words often reveal that we are not so much trusting in the Lord as we are trying to be the Lord. 
Think about that. Our words reveal that we are not so much trusting in the Lord as we are trying to be him. And that's the underlying problem. We want to run things. We want the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever for ourselves. Not only is that treason against God worthy of hell, it is the most miserable existence possible under the sun. To take upon ourselves the responsibility for running the world without having the ability to pull it off. You know, our lives become a roller coaster of guilt and shame in our failure, of pride in our success, of fear in our uncertainty, of anger when our plan is blocked, and of despair when everything unravels. And afterwards, we face judgment for it. But the beautiful, the liberating truth of the gospel is that we are not king, that we don't have to be king, because Jesus is king. And he's a good king. He is our sovereign and sufficient king who is in control of every situation, who has the authority and the power to accomplish all his will, and who has the grace and the mercy to do so for unworthy sinners like you and me. Colossians tells us, speaking of Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There is forgiveness in Christ for our deception and our sin. He died on the cross for those sins. He rose again to give forgiveness, to give new life to all who trust in him. And there is freedom in Christ to turn away from our sin and our deceptive, dishonest speech and to follow Jesus, even with our words, to say what we mean and to do what we say. And it all flows out of recognizing that he is the sovereign and the sufficient king. If God is sovereign, if he's in control, that means I don't have to be. Think about the freedom of that reality when it really sets it home. If God's in control, I don't have to be. I don't have to use my words to manipulate or impress or grasp for control. I can speak truthfully and say what I mean, even if it doesn't provide the results I'm hoping for. So even if it means that my boss might pass me up for a promotion, or my classmates might dismiss my idea at school as stupid, I can speak the truth and trust God with the results, because he is the sovereign king who will be faithful to work out all his purposes according to his good pleasure. If God is sufficient, if he's enough, that means I can trust him to supply for me everything that I need. I don't have to fudge the truth to be accepted because I'm accepted in Christ. Neither do I have to look for a way out of my words as though I'm going to miss out on something good if I kept them 
Because whatever it is I think I might gain by breaking my word, Jesus is better than that. Whether I'm simply just trying to cross off one more thing off my list and feel successful at the end of the day, whether I'm, I'm trying to get more money or more power, whether I'm thinking about trading in my old spouse for a new one, whatever it is that would cause us to break our word, not only is it an affront against God and his holiness and an offense to our neighbor, it pales in cheap comparison to the satisfaction that we find in Christ. If our hearts are satisfied in him, if he is to us the greatest treasure that this world affords, then I don't have to trade him in for something I think will be better. I don't have to forfeit his grace. I can honor Jesus and keep my word because he is enough, because he is in control, even if the situation seems unbearable. He is in control and because he is worth my obedience. He's my king my sufficient and sovereign Savior. Even when our flesh is too weak to keep our word, we want to do it, but we just don't know how to. We, we can't seem to stay on the course, or, or we can't imagine, we know we need to take that step, but we know what's going to happen if we do and how much it's going to cost us if we follow through with our words. And so we just can't, we just can't even lift our leg to do it. Even when we're too weak, Jesus is our strength in our weakness. Through his spirit, he supplies all that we need by changing our hearts and by giving us the ability to follow him if we will trust him instead of try to be him. And that's what it comes back to. Are we going to trust God instead of try and be him? God is our sovereign and sufficient king. And because he's in control, and because he's everything that we need, those who follow Christ can say what they mean and do what they say. Again, to quote Paul Tripp, only when I submit to the rule of God, who has a perfect plan and is in complete control, will I begin to live and speak as he has purposed. The integrity of our speech begins with saying no to our self-glorifying agendas and grows by surrendering to Jesus, our sovereign and sufficient King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us believe that. Help us believe that you truly are in control. Our hearts tell us otherwise. Our circumstances sometimes tell us otherwise. And so, so we act out of our hearts. God, help us believe you really are in control. And therefore, we really can trust you. You really are enough. And so we really can be satisfied in you. And so follow you and worship you. And loving you and loving others. Lord, take the careless words, those that we uttered even this morning on the way out the door to church. Take all of our empty promises, all the things we used in order to make us look big and others look small. Take those things, take them under your blood, change our hearts, make us new, Lord. Help us honor you with our speech. 
as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.